0: I'm Eden.
1: And I'm Nicole. Welcome Welcome to to Roadside 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 Hard Show. Show.
0: Hello, we are in Texas this week.
1: Ah, the Lone Star State.
0: And we're having weird difficulties, so bear with us if this episode sounds weird.
1: So, Eden. Yes. Are you ready for some fun facts about the great state of Texas? I absolutely am. All right. I think the most common fact, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners know this one too, is that Texas is the only American state that used to be its own country before it joined the Union. That's right. Texas uh, won its independence from Mexico in 1836, and it was its own republic until 1845 before it joined the U.S. So I think we all know that Everything's bigger in Texas. Texas has this weird thing about size. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> but here are my fun facts about how gosh darn large Texas is and things in Texas are. So, starting with the first one Texas is larger than any country in Western Europe, like larger than France, larger than Germany, larger than everything in Western Europe. Number two, three of Amer- North America's largest cities are in Texas. So that's Houston, San Antonio, which is number seven, Houston's upper four, and Dallas, which is number nine. Texas is so big that there is actually a ranch in Texas, the King Ranch. It's in South Texas. It's so large that it's actually larger than the entire state of Rhode Island.
0: Well, I mean, that's not hard to do. It's Rhode
1: Island. I mean, you're very true in that. Rhode Island's a tiny state, but it's a single ranch. That's true. Um. I think I have one or two more. Let me just check. Any other large Texas claims? I think that's it. All right. So that's my Texas is a big ass state. Everything's bigger in Texas segment.
0: Especially the hair.
1: Especially the hair. Well, you know. If
0: the country music awards are anything to be believed.
1: I mean, I believe it. Bigger the hair, the closer to heaven, (laughs) right? That's true. So one thing I thought was hilarious that totally fits into our podcast is that in Norwegian slang, Eden, because I know you love the Scandinavian languages. I do. The word Texas means crazy. Really? (laughs) Yep.
0: (laughs) That is bizarre.
1: So if you call somebody like, oh, he's so Texas, it's like, yeah, he crazy.
0: Wow. Okay. (laughs) And I thought uh, Japan was weird with that. There's actually um, in... Japan, one of the like subcultures that they have over there is called Yankee. Really? And it's like bad mullets and like super like uh like white trash type uh clothing and styles. Weird. Yeah.
1: Oh Japan. Let's see. What else is unique about the city of Texas? So Austin, which is the capital, is widely considered the live music capital of the world, which I kind of always wondered about that because I remember on PBS late at night as a teenager watching uh, Austin City Limits, and I didn't understand why it was in Austin, but apparently there's a huge live music scene there. I did not know that. Yeah. So, Eden, you've been to Six Flags Great Adventure or any of the Six Flags amusement parks?
0: The Jersey one, yeah.
1: Yes, the Jersey one, for sure. So I always wonder why it was called Six Flags. It turns out that the park is part of a homage to Texas history because it was founded in Texas. I did not know that. Yeah. So it the first park, Six Flags Park, opened in Arlington, Texas in 1961. And they called it Six Flags because Texas has had six different owners or governments Uh, fly over the state so there's been the new united states the republic of texas the confederacy france spain and mexico so those are the six flags that have flown over the proud state of texas and that's where the amusement park gets its name interesting yeah
0: because i knew it was six flags over texas but i didn't know why
1: more tornadoes have been recorded in texas than any other state and i think in my head i immediately think of pecos bill and that tall tale where it's like he wrote a tornado and cut the rio Grande. <laughs> oh yeah i forgot about that texas has the highest speed limit in the country uh the speed limit in texas is 85 miles per hour jesus yeah i'm like i guess it makes sense if you're on like a wide flat place on a highway, like you can see for miles. So it's not like you're on like these windy mountain roads or there's not like trees or inclement weather that could be destroying the the road surface, things like that. So,
0: Well, if I'm correct in this, Texas is actually a pretty flat state for the most part. Um, My friend from Texas, the one time when uh, I was driving uh, down 611, which is all sorts of windy back roads with falling rock and all sorts of things, she was, like, gripping that, like, little bar at the top of the, you know what I'm talking oh, about? Oh, yeah. The Jesus, On the side of the door. Yeah, the Jesus Christ bar. She was, yeah. Yeah, she was uh, she was gripping the oh shit bar. And uh, she was, uh, I was like, do, do you think I'm a bad driver? What's wrong? She's like, no, I think you're a really good driver. We just don't have roads like this in Texas. Everything's the highway. It's scary.
1: <laughs> That's funny. Um, it actually does lead into my other fun fact about Texas roadways. She's totally accurate. Texas has a lot of highway. They have over 72,000 miles of highway in Texas. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy.
0: So she's not exaggerating at all.
1: Mm -mm, mm -mm. Everything's a highway.
0: Well, life is a highway if that song is to be believed.
1: Well, I know you're going my way because otherwise we wouldn't have a podcast. (laughs) Let's see. Let's see. Anything else fun about Texas? I have so many facts. So many things. The official sport of the great city of Texas is, can you guess? Uh rodeo. You got it, it's a rodeo. Uh, and one of my favorite sodas of all time was invented in Texas. Ooh, what soda? Dr. Pepper.
0: Really? Okay. I could I could see that, I guess.
1: Interesting thing about Dr. Pepper. So it was inv- invented in like 1885. So it puts it as one of the older, you know, commercially available sodas. It was invented in Waco by a pharmacist named Charles Alderton. And the doctor, the DR of Dr. Pepper, does not have a period after it. Huh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: I did not know that. I just know that like if you mix all of the sodas together, they end up tasting like Dr. Pepper. Really? Yes.
1: I'm going to try that next time on a road trip with you. And if it's gross, you have to drink it.
0: My favorite thing to mix used to be mixing Sprite and lemonade together, like Sprite and pink lemonade. Yeah, it's really nice.
1: Nice. Nice. All right. One last fun fact, and I think it does kind of tie back to uh, perhaps Texas's weird inadequacy issues. I don't know. but
0: Well, everything's bigger. They must be compensating for something.
1: Exactly. Including with their state capital. Their state capital is taller than any other U.S. state capital by a whopping 15 feet. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Texas. So now that we've sufficiently explored the wacky facts about Texas and learning about their bigger, better, lots of highway, highfalutin radio lifestyle, I'm kind of excited to hear about the story you dug up for me because I know you said it was very interesting.
0: Oh, yeah, it's nuts. It's one that I had heard a while back. And Damon this week actually helped me find a story. And it was funny because he was like, Oh, going through like this list. And then like the one is like Waco. And I'm like, No, not Waco. Everybody does Waco. <laughs> um, But then this one he mentioned, I was like, I know this story and I love this story. And I forgot that it took place partly in Texas. So I'm going to cover this one. Fantastic. Let's do it. All right. Well, my story for this week takes place in Houston, Texas. Houston. This city has a huge population with 2,320,268 residents as of 2019, making Houston the most populous city in Texas, the most populous city in all of the South, the fourth most populous city in the country, and the sixth most populous city in North America.
1: Wow. That's crazy.
0: Yes. So everything is bigger in Texas. (laughs) It is the county seat of Harris County, which is one of three counties that it is in, along with Fort Bend and Montgomery counties. It has an area of 671.70 square miles. Obviously, with a city this size, there are a ton of things to do. It's home to a lot of different annual events, including the largest annual livestock show in the world, the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo, which lasts for about 20 days in March. Uh, so it might be going on as we record this right now. Who knows?
1: Interesting. I don't, I mean, I wonder what the, well, I was gonna say, I wonder about, you know, pandemic restrictions, but then I'm like, oh, but it's Texas. It's fine.
0: That's true. (laughs) Exactly. So Texas, like they recently, uh, like got rid of like the mask mandate, I think. Yep. 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 And there's a few other states that are doing that as well, I think. But Texas is very much its own creature. (laughs) For
1: sure. I mean, it used to be its own country
0: yeah exactly. It's seceded. So it also hosts one of the uh, top five art festivals in the country, the Bayou City Art Festival. And yes, with a name like that, I had expected to be in Louisiana too. One of the really cool events uh, in this town has to be the art Car parade, which is this parade for decorated cars art. Car. Um, so I guess they were too busy to make floats so they just decorated their cars. I don't know. <laughs> That's kind of
1: cool though. I love it.
0: It is. Uh, It was the first of its kind as far as my research has shown. And it's not just limited to cars either. People enter bikes, motorcycles, and even have like roller skaters in the parade. So it started in 1988. And it seems like a really fun event to attend, in my opinion, just because I've never heard of such a thing before. And another thing you might know about Houston is it's where NASA has two space centers. And that plays into today's story. So without further ado, this is the story of Lisa Nowak. Oh, I do you know this one?
1: I think I know like the tabloid story version of this one where it's like, hey, here's this crazy story about an astronaut. She did all these nutty things and I'm sure there's more to the story.
0: Oh, yeah, there's there's a lot. And um, it's it's nutty. (laughs) So Lisa Nowak was born Lisa Marie Caputo on May 10th, 1963, in Washington, D.C., to parents Alfredo F. Caputo and Jane L. Caputo. They lived, however, in Rockville, Maryland. So ever since Lisa was a little girl, she was kind of obsessed with space. When she was just five or six, she watched the Apollo 11 moon landing on TV and pretty much knew she wanted to be an astronaut when she grew up. The good thing about growing up just a half an hour away from Washington, D.C., Is that a young girl interested in the space program had access to an amazing resource for learning about space, the National Air and Space Museum. Honestly, for me, it was the most boring of the museums that I visited with (laughs) school in eighth grade when I went to DC, but I was like 13 or 14, so I might find it a little more interesting now. Did you ever go to DC on a field trip?
1: I did, but it wasn't a museum field trip. It was definitely like a Catholic school pro life march. But <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, I have spent quite a bit of time in D.C. after high school, and I just love that every museum on the mall is free, basically. So you can see all of like the national museums and a lot of the Smithsonian stuff, and it's free. Uh, it has been a hot minute since I've been to the Air and Space Museum, though, and I remember that it's impressive, but also I'm not a space gal. So after a while, I got a little bored and kind of wanted to go back outside and, and go across the street to the National History Museum because that one's pretty banging. That one's my favorite.
0: Yeah, agreed. One event that really excited Lisa in her younger years was when they started allowing female astronauts in 1978. So, before that year, the space program in America has really been a boys' club, but now introducing women into the mix meant that she really had a chance at the life she's always wanted. By all accounts, Lisa was smart and athletic, so the best of both worlds, I guess. Not only was she named Student Athlete of the Year, but she was also co-valedictorian at her graduation, both of which are amazing achievements. When she applied to college, she was actually accepted into both Brown, aka the school that I had wanted to go to in my favorite state, Rhode Island, (laughs) but she also got accepted to the Naval Academy. Now, her parents thought Brown would be the best choice for her. But Lisa knew exactly what she wanted and decided to go to the Naval Academy in Annapolis instead, which I'm sure her parents didn't mind all that much since it meant that she'd be staying in the same state as them for school. Being a woman in the Naval Academy was still kind of a new thing at this point since it was 1981 and women had only been allowed to attend since 1976. So that's only five short years prior to her arrival. Obviously, this too was still a boys club, And women going to the Naval Academy still received some harsh treatment from the boys as well as professors who still thought women weren't good enough. Gross. Yep. Gotta love the patriarchy. She joined the Navy as an ensign in 1985 upon graduating. I had no idea what that was, so I looked it up. It's taken from the Latin word insignia and is a junior rank in the Navy. Not nearly as interesting as I thought it would be, to be honest, but I put it in my notes anyway. She was assigned to be an aerospace engineer at the Johnson Space Center in Houston. During her time there, six space shuttles had launched. In December of that year, she got orders to report for flight training, which was something women at the time rarely ever got to do since there were no female combat troops. And this took place in Pensacola, Florida. Very cool. By June of 1987, she was a naval flight officer. Uh, I'm going to skip over a lot of things here because it's just a bunch of boring Navy talk about how amazing Lisa was, which as we continue on to this story, you'll see why she's not the greatest person in the world. Hint, murder. It's related to murder. Mm -mm. I know that was a major spoiler because people don't know this is a true crime podcast.
1: (laughs) Surprise, guys.
0: (laughs) So basically, Lisa did a lot of really awesome stuff and kind of further the advancement for women in the Navy. She got moved around a lot and was promoted a bunch. In 1988, she married a man named Richard T. Nowak. The two were wed in the Naval Academy Chapel on April 6th. She went to postgraduate school in 1990 in California and graduated with a master of science degree in aeronautical engineering and a degree in astronautical engineering as well in 1992 which was a big year for her since she had her first child in february of the same year
1: wow yep that's pretty fucking fantastic
0: i know she began working for nasa in 1996 and it's kind of weird how it works for navy officers when applying whereas a civilian could just apply directly to nasa naval officers have to give their application to a review board for approval. And she actually became one of only 150 finalists out of 2,400 applicants. She reported back to the location of her first assignment with the Navy, the Johnson Space Center in Houston. Out of those 150 people, Lisa was one of 35 people to make it on board as a mission specialist.
1: Wow, that's really impressive.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So she was sent to train in a group with these other people as well as nine international astronauts. And because of how many of them there were, they called themselves the Sardines. (laughs) I thought that was pretty cool. Due to how much time she was spending in Houston, she and her family moved to Texas and built a house in Clear Lake City. Her husband, who was also in the Navy, which is where they had met, also got a job at the Johnson Space Center as a flight controller. And in 2001, Lisa became pregnant again, and this time with twins. She acted as a mission specialist in July of 2006 uh, on the Discovery shuttle, which I'm sure was a huge highlight of her career. Uh, But I want to talk about something that happened two years before this, in 2004. Even though she was married and now had three children, plus an exciting career as an astronaut, She decided to do something I didn't think she'd have time for, have an affair with fellow astronaut William O'Felan. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that last name right, but that's how I'm going to say it, because it's spelled all kinds of crazy.
1: (laughs) That's A-OK by me.
0: (laughs) I honestly don't understand, because how are you balancing a career in space, marriage with three kids? doing all the mundane shit you have to do around the house and still have time for an affair. I barely have time to do my household chores, my job, and this podcast.
1: Uh, She never slept Eden, ever.
0: Apparently not.
1: Sleep is not something that Lisa ever had to do, apparently.
0: I guess. (laughs) And it's not even like they ever went to space together. So it's not like she had time in space for her affair. uh, Because although they were both in space, it was never at the same time.
1: That's a whole other level of sexy, though, if you think about a space affair.
0: Oh, yes. I've had them in Mass Effect. (laughs) This affair turned out to be a big deal, causing William to divorce his wife of 19 years in 2005, and Lisa separated from her husband in early 2007.
1: Wow.
0: She definitely saw a future with this man, and everything seemed pretty great on paper. That was, of course, until William ended things with Lisa by telling her that he had entered into a relationship with an Air Force captain named Colleen Shipman. Yikes. Which, I mean, come on. You started a relationship with him when y'all were both married. So he's probably going to do the same thing to you. Yeah. Just saying. As much as this probably killed Lisa to hear, she played it off like she accepted the whole thing. But, spoiler alert, she did not. (laughs) This is when Lisa started going off the deep end a bit, and she decided to use a key to William's apartment that she must have forgotten to give him back. And went on to read some emails between William and Colleen, and they were quite saucy. Not quite Darling Wonderheart level, but still saucy nonetheless. And yes, that reference was from episode three of this podcast. So listen, if you don't know what I'm talking about.
1: (laughs) Nice callback. Nice callback.
0: (laughs) One of the emails said, we'll have to control myself when I see you. First urge will be to rip your clothes off, throw you on the ground and love the hell out of you. Wow. Yep. I'm a little turned on. I don't know about you, but.
1: Such passion. A little hot and
0: bothered. (laughs) So. She also learned from her snooping that William was on a flight to Orlando, which, if you didn't know, also has at least one NASA space center. And uh, she had a plan to confront William's new girlfriend, who, to add insult to injury, she found out was 10 years younger than herself.
1: Wow, this this can only end well, I can tell you right now.
0: Oh, exactly. She's going to have a shitty time, and you'll know what I mean by that in a second.
1: Oh, I'm so excited.
0: So she decided to drive the 900 miles, or some sources said like 950 miles, not sure, uh, from Texas uh, to or the Orlando airport, and she wasn't stopping for even one bathroom break. You may ask how she was planning to achieve this speed, and I am more than happy to tell you. So... Astronauts, when going into space, get lots of regulation gear for the trip. One of those items is a diaper. And not just any diaper, but the mother of all diapers, which are super absorbent. Remember, these are government-issued for space travel. So basically, <laughs> basically, she puts her ass in some space diapers, gets in the car, and just lets it rip. <laughs> wow.
1: This is like the height of diaper technology. She's like, I got it. Let's go. Mm."
0: Exactly. Uh, I can't help but imagine her just like sitting at a red light, making that face. You know, the one, the poop pushing face. (laughs) And some guy next to her in another car just looking over and seeing her bear down and she just like awkwardly waves back to
1: him. It's just like, are you pooping? Are you pooping? Like I just picture like all the like parents of like potty training toddlers that I know. And it's just like that like intense like, are you pooping? Just tell me if you're pooping. Don't poop over exactly.
0: there. Exactly. <laughs> like, you know, the face and you know that look. And I'm sure everyone else does too. Um, so she must have smelled so fucking bad after this car ride because she's just like pissing and shitting in this diaper. Hmm. anyway she used not one but two of these bad boys for her trip
1: you know what i think the diaper thing is the one piece of like information about this that i remember sticking out really well at the time like that's what every news story covered it was always about this woman in a diaper and, yes like that's that's what i remember most about it honestly and that's kind of tragic
0: no the first article that i read said back in 2007 uh you know the whole ordeal. It wasn't the scandalous blah, blah blah blah. It wasn't the affair. It wasn't that anything else. It was the diaper. So messed up that that's what like the yeah. media fixated on. That's what people remember of this story. And the reason that I wanted to cover it because diapers. Um. So anyway, uh, the diapers weren't the only thing that she brought along on this trip. She also took a steel mallet, a BB gun, ammo, a black wig, pepper spray. Latex gloves, four feet of rubber tubing, duct tape, garbage bags, which I hope she used for those diapers, (laughs) a floppy disk with, quote, female nudes and bondage instructions, end quote, and a map of the area where Colleen lived.
1: Oh, so she's going to hit Disney that before she went back home. Okay. I guess so.
0: I mean, wow. Okay. So later, after she was caught for the events that are about to unfold, she told police that she just wanted to, quote, Talk to Colleen. Really, Lisa? Let's just be honest with ourselves for a minute. I'm talking to you right now, Nicole. Am I armed to the teeth? I mean,
1: probably not, but I don't know what you have under that hat.
0: That's true. So, back to this incident. She follows her on the bus that she takes at the airport and back to her car. Um, Lisa is wearing this black wig and a trench coat to hide her identity. And the thing about this is by wearing that trench coat in fucking Florida, she looks super sketchy. And Colleen had actually spotted her and was already getting jumpy.
1: Yeah. Because
0: it's hot in Florida. Yeah. Why the trench coat?
1: Oh, I goodness. don't understand.
0: Nicole, I don't understand.
1: Well, I mean, clearly she is a very clear thinking, obviously well-planned individual. So for her to say, hey, you know what? trench coat it's florida it's you know warm there it's a real it's a but it's like a it's like a balmy heat so i definitely want to cover myself up as much as possible with you know a long trench coat true well
0: colleen gets in her car and lisa walks up asking for a ride saying that her boyfriend forgot to like pick her up or something to that effect And like I had mentioned, Colleen is super suspicious of this woman wearing a long-ass trench coat in probably 90-degree weather. And she's like, uh, no, but I'll call someone for you. So Colleen rolls down her window just slightly, and that's when Lisa decides to pull out the pepper spray and use it on her. What? So I know I said murder before, but I misled you guys a little bit. Although the tools Lisa Nowak brought with her would lead anyone to believe that's what she had planned, We'll never know for sure because after being pepper sprayed, Colleen manages to drive away somehow.
1: Holy shit.
0: Yeah. Thank God. Run away from the crazy diaper lady, Colleen. Run away from the crazy diaper lady. So when the police arrive because Colleen was able to call them, she's giving them a description of what happened to her. And she tells them a woman with black hair uh, and wearing a trench coat attacked her. So the cops are thinking, crap, this lady is probably so far away by now. But lucky enough for them, Lisa, for as smart as I'm sure she was, was kind of a dumbass because she's still hanging out in the parking lot, dumping a garbage bag and something black into the trash. They look in her duffel bag and they find the trench coat and have Colleen identify her as the woman who attacked her. She was obviously arrested on the spot and brought to the Orlando Police Department. Now, here's where we get into my favorite area, and that would be the conflicting information area. There's a there's a chance that she did not use fancy space diapers and they may have just been regular diapers, which her lawyer apparently argued weren't even hers, but her toddler's diapers from her from her kids.
1: Wait, wait, wait. Lisa's lawyers argued that? Yes. That does not make it better. Like, did someone tell them that it doesn't make it better? It makes it kind of worse.
0: Yes, exactly. So guess what? We're not buying it. She ain't squeezing her ass into toddler diapers. She needs them big girl NASA pants. (laughs) When they told Colleen who Lisa was, she knew the name sounded familiar, but she wasn't sure where from. But here's the weird thing. Then she remembered that William had actually called her Lisa in bed once
1: what
0: yeah gross that's upsetting
1: yeah so
0: lisa was charged with attempted kidnapping and burglary with assault and she was actually the first astronaut uh to have a felony charge brought against her uh for what i was able to find out and that's like active duty astronaut not like retired or anything gotcha She ended up pleading insanity, saying that she suffered from insomnia, OCD, and depression. Me too, sis. Me too, but I didn't attack anyone. (laughs) Time to put on your big girl depends. Oops, (laughs) I mean pants. And take some responsibility. So in the end, she got a little more than a slap on the wrist since she wasn't completely informed of her rights. And her police interview ended up being inadmissible in court. They did a plea deal instead where her record would be sealed and she'd get a year of probation, some community service, and had to apologize to Colleen in writing. I bet she shit herself when she heard that. Good thing she had those diapers. Wow. (laughs) So Colleen was not happy with this at all because she still says, and I agree, that Lisa intended to murder her that day. Why else did you bring, like, fucking latex gloves and a mallet and a BB gun and, like, a shovel or whatever else she had on her? So Colleen and William ended up staying together after this, getting married, having a kid, and moving to Alaska, where Lisa ended up being demoted and let go from the Navy. She wasn't dishonorably discharged, though, but it was labeled as other than honorable discharge. I don't know exactly what that means.
1: Uh, It could be like something because there are other like statuses, like if you have a mental or health issue. You can be discharged. Usually, it's mental health. You can be discharged, and it's not considered an honorable discharge, but it's not a dishonorable one. So it's not like either or. It's kind of like honorable discharge okay. and then other classes. So, like for example, when homosexuality was not allowed in the military, you could be, you know, discharged, and you wouldn't necessarily be honorably discharged depending on what happened that you know caused you to be outed.
0: Okay, I get it. Uh, Now, some people do blame NASA for this, since she only had an initial psych evaluation in 1996 and then never again after that. They do yearly ones now because of this. Wow. Yeah. They also blame the Columbia shuttle crash for attributing to her deteriorating mental state back in 2003, since she knew people who died in that crash. Some of them were her friends. Some of them were people that she had trained with. Um, so that may have played a role in her going fucking psycho. Um, that was my story. That's all I got. Uh, what do you think, Nicole?
1: I mean, it's definitely unique. Um, yeah. And it, it, I agree with you, though. It's like she was absolutely planning to murder Colleen. Like that is oh, yeah. 100% her like goal. And it's only by like sheer luck that it didn't go according to Lisa's plan, you know?
0: so exactly like pepper spray hurts like hell you can't breathe you can't mm-hmm. see I don't know how she managed to get away but I'm glad she did
1: yeah would have been a much different story if she hadn't that's oh, for yeah. sure but yeah I mean I think it's interesting too when you mentioned that you know she could have had been suffering just from like the mental strain of The impact of uh, Columbia, right? Yeah. And how that disaster, you know, it's people you, like you said, trained with. And that can definitely bring a toll because it's like, you know, your work colleague, your friends. And I feel like given how elite um, astronauts are and just the intensity of the training and what you're trained to do, I'm sure you form very, very deep bonds with people. So I'm sure that definitely had a a very negative impact on her well-being. Plus, you know, having an affair, having a bunch of kids, this whole like double life. Boy.
0: Oh, yeah. My sources for this week were Wikipedia, Biography.com, Houstoniamag.com, Time.com, TexasMonthly.com, and a podcast called Female Criminals.
1: All right. Well, I guess we'll take a short break and then uh, come back and I can share my paranormal story with y'all.
0: Awesome. Can't wait to be scared. I might need some diapers for it. (laughs) Hello, guys. Um, I know it's weird to hear us during a break, but I have something special for you guys and especially for Nicole.
1: Really? I'm excited.
0: So, Nicole, remember in Missouri Part 2 when you talked about the great food that St. Louis has to offer or the very polarizing food that St. Louis has to offer?
1: I do indeed. I do indeed. It piqued my culinary curiosity for sure.
0: Well, I got an early birthday present because my birthday is coming up. And do you hear this crinkling?
1: I do hear crinkling. What is it?
0: It is a bag of Old Vienna of St. Louis red hot (gasps) ripplets.
1: The ripplets? Yep. Oh my gosh. I'm so, have you tried them? Have you opened them?
0: No, I was waiting to record with you, which is why I decided to push this ahead.
1: Excellent. I'm so excited because I feel like when it comes to spicy food, you're definitely way more adventurous and can take the heat a little bit better than I can. So I'm excited to get your opinion on how hot these ripplets really are.
0: Yes, I would like to know that too, but just as a precaution, I'm going to get a drink real quick.
1: Go for the milk. Always go for milk.
0: If I have any, that's not expired because I'm terrible with milk. (laughs) I have milk.
1: Excellent. Milk, check.
0: All right, I'm going to open the bag. See how crushed they got during shipping. (laughs) Oh no, they're still pretty whole. So they are... um, They're definitely like the, the Ripley chips, the, like the, the ridges Mm -hmm. Salem, get out of my milk. Um, okay. So Salem is really into this and wanted to drink my milk. Um, okay. So they look like a standard barbecue chips. So we're going to see how these taste. Hmm. Okay. So they definitely do have a bit of heat you don't taste it at first i'm not sure how i actually feel about them yet
1: does it have like a sweet barbecue taste at
0: first it has a strange barbecue taste in my opinion
1: that's like st louis barbecue sauce everybody loves it's different than the kansas city style
0: yeah okay so i'm gonna try one more just to see my mouth is a little burny but it's not bad i think it's cayenne ah Yeah, I'm still, I'm not sure. Like, I'm not sure how I feel about these.
1: Well, I'm glad I didn't get a straight up nope out of the bag.
0: (laughs) No, I definitely didn't get a nope, but didn't quite get a yes either. I think I would probably have to rank them somewhere in the middle.
1: In the middle. So now that you've tried the old Vienna hot riplets, does this make you want to try other St. Louis cuisine?
0: Uh, It gives me a little bit of pause, but yeah, I'll still try it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You heard it here first, gang.
0: Yeah, so if anyone was curious about the Red Hot Ripplets, they are
1: okay. (laughs) They are okay.
0: (laughs) A ringing endorsement from Roadside Horror Show. (laughs) All right, we are back. And I have a news story for you.
1: Do, 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 do. That's my crappy newsreel impression. I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> well, thank you. You're too kind. Uh,
0: so, this article is from boingboing.net, which I have no idea what that is. But it's Seagull swoops down and eats man's tongue after woman bites it off in brawl. What? Yeah. And I'm just from reading that headline. I am very much reminded of Lorena Bobbitt.
1: Yeah. Like, what are the chances?
0: Yeah. So, this happened in Scotland. A woman in Edinburgh bit off part of a man's tongue during a street brawl, and a seagull swooped down and ate it before he could retrieve it. He did not require surgery, given the piece of tongue was no longer available, and he and it could not be reattached. Mackenzie mm-hmm. continued to be aggressive towards Ms. Ryan, and he approached her again with a clenched fish. A fish, my God, fist.
1: Oh my God, this got real weird real quick.
0: <laughs> I know. I can't read apparently. <laughs> um, so. Ms. Dickinson, Miss Dixon, sorry, Dixon said, Ms. Ryan somewhat oddly responded to that by pushing him on the body and kissing him. She kissed him on the lips, and during the course of that, she bit through his tongue, which caused a piece of his tongue to be removed. Mr. Mackenzie walked off and spat a part of his tongue out, at which point the piece of muscle was picked up by a large seagull that made off with the piece of tongue. Ms. Ryan pleaded guilty to assaulting Mackenzie, but sentencing was deferred.
1: (laughs) Wow. That is quite the story.
0: Exactly.
1: Because of the very uh, detailed reporting, I feel like I can picture it in my head happening.
0: Exactly. So he was like being aggressive toward her and she's like, come here, let me smooch you a little bit.
1: (laughs) He walked away and spit out his tongue. And then the the seagull's just like.
0: Exactly. Uh-oh. And then she's probably like, what's the matter? Seagull got your tongue?
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, you always find the best stories, Eden.
0: I try. I try to find the weirdest ones that I can.
1: You do a good job. You do a good job. Thank you. I appreciate it. So speaking of good stories, I hope my paranormal story is also entertaining. Uh, it takes place in Galveston,
0: Okay. Another town that I know of, and it's not far from Houston, I don't believe. I think they're in the same like metropolitan area.
1: You're right. It is part of the, the greater Houston area, and it's located in like southeastern Texas. Uh, Galveston is a port end of the city, which is interesting, and it's actually spread across two islands in the Gulf of Mexico. So there's Galveston Island and then Pelican Island. Huh. Yeah, so it's kind of a little bit sprawling like things tend to be in Texas. It's 211 square miles is what the wow. city is considered, but it only has about 50,000 people living there. Okay. Uh, so the first year European settlers arrived on the island in the early 1800s, and the port of Galveston was officially established in 1825 by the Mexican government, shortly after Mexico won its independence from Spain. Uh, the city is named after Bernardo de Galvez e Madrid, Count of Galvez, who was an important military leader and political leader in that general region in the late 18th century. The city of Galveston was the main port for the fledgling Republic of Texas's navy. And during the Texas Revolution of 1863, it was very strategically important uh, in terms of naval battles against Mexico. Later, once the Republic was established, uh, Galveston served temporarily as the national capital because it was so defendable. Now, during the 19th century, uh, Galveston grew and became a major U.S. commercial center, and it's one of the largest ports in the U.S. Wow. It was for a time actually Texas's largest city, and it was nicknamed the Queen City of the Gulf, which I think is just a lovely nickname.
0: That sounds beautiful. And regal
1: and regal, doesn't it doesn't it just? since Galveston is on the Gulf of Mexico, obviously it has pretty humid subtropical weather, and it's really susceptible to hurricanes in the spring and fall, like a lot of Gulf coastal areas. It was also uh, the location of the worst natural disaster in u s. history, or at least the deadliest, most deadly hurricane in u s. history. but i'll get I'll touch on that a little bit later today, Galveston's still a very busy shipping port, given its coastal location. A lot of Caribbean passenger cruise ships call Galveston their home port, especially those from the Carnival cruise lines. Uh, aside from shipping and the cruising industry, banking and insurance are huge players in Galveston's economy. Uh, headquartered in the city are both Moody National Bank, which is one of the largest privately owned banks in Texas, and American National Insurance, which is actually one of the largest insurance companies. In the U.S. Since the late 19th century, Galveston has also been a popular tourist destination. Often it's called the Playground of the South. Okay. And it's really this tourism that makes up the other bulk of Galveston's economy. You can find lots of your typical beach town experiences. It has lots of lovely coasts, the waters there, lots of ample fishing. Uh, lodgings in Galveston run the gambit from, you know, beachfront condos and motels to these grand old historic Victorian hotels and to your more simpler vintage bed and breakfasts as well. Now, because it's a tourist town, there are plenty of things to do in Galveston. Some of the more popular destinations are the Galveston Island Historic Pleasure Pier, which is exactly what it sounds like. One of those other pleasure, pleasure things you like, Eden. Pleasure Beach. Oh, yes. It just
0: sounds like it's rampant with with sex workers.
1: (laughs) Uh, There's also the Galveston Schlittlerbund Water Park, the Moody Gardens Botanical Park. Moody? Yes, Moody. So like the banking corporation that's headquartered there, Moody National Bank, they actually sponsored a botanical garden there. It's really cool. There's like this big glass pyramid within the botanical park. Okay. Yeah. Very cool looking. There's the Ocean Star Offshore drilling rig and museum which definitely sounds like the most texas museum ever (laughs) uh there's the galveston rower museum and of course you can never get tired of the beach and there's tons of beachfront property basically all across the city from the east ends pareto beach to the west ends little pocket parks that they have where you can enjoy more more uh nature oriented beaches sounds fun Now, this is something I think you would find a lot of fun in Eden because Galveston has some fantastic historical buildings and mansions.
0: Ooh, I'm intrigued.
1: Yeah, they're right up your alley, too, because they're sort of the Victorian, uh, late 19th century style of building and architecture. In particular, if you want to check out some of these historical buildings, grab a little bit to eat and maybe do some shopping, you can head down to the Strand uh, the Strand's a downtown neighborhood that's actually listed as a National Historic Landmark District. This five block district is very close to the Galveston Wharf, um, which has made it a natural spot for businesses who want to tap into the visitors who come through the city's busy port. And it's been that way for most of the city's history. The Strand is also home to the city's annual Mardi Gras celebration. And a unique Christmas festival called Dickens on the Strand.
0: All right. Well, this isn't helping with my pleasure beach thing.
1: Getting some <laughs> Dickens on the Strand. Uh, Dickens on the Strand is interesting. I had to look into it, of course. And it's basically a festival that highlights Galveston's Victorian history through a parade and a costume contest. It very heavily features characters from the works of Charles Dickens, and there's even a Queen Victoria who is in the parade every year. They do a costume contest every year for the best period costumes as well. So, oh, cool. Yeah, it sounded kind of like a very unique Christmas celebration, if I do say so myself. Yeah. Uh, We are also going to stop in the Strand District for our location today, which is one of the oldest surviving commercial structures on the Strand. It's the Hendley Row. Now, the Hendley Row was built between 1855 and 1859, and it's actually a three-story Greek Revival block building. And it's four separate buildings, but they're all connected with common walls and a very uniform brick facade. Ah, uh, they have these granite coins marking the separations between the buildings. And coins are, of course, those big blocks that kind of um, inset over brick,
0: yeah, it's weird that you said Greek, you said Greek revival, right? yep, yep. and And you said brick. I don't imagine those two things together,
1: well, so, I totally understand that, but when you think about it, like, Greek Revival is very much about the street lines and having the columns and pillars, and this building does, and all of those columns and pillars and cornices and lintels and stuff, that's all granite, and then the rest of the building is made from brick. Here, I'll send you a quick picture. Oh,
0: here we go. I found it.
1: Yeah. It's interesting, because there's also, like, a market in it that's called Headley Market, and they kind of –
0: That's exactly what I'm looking at right now. (laughs) Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm.
0: And it's very much, it reminds me more so of something that you would see in New Orleans.
1: Yes, very much so. The row was constructed by two brothers, William and Joseph Headley, and they were cotton and commission merchants who wanted to be closer to the wharf, but also wanted a grand building to support their growing business. Uh, like I said before, there's lots of granite used in this building. uh The first story has an arcade in it with a granite threshold and has these big double doors that open between these impressive granite pillars and a huge granite cornice uh The second and third floors are built with compressed brick the granite there's granite lintels above each of the windows. Originally, there was a third floor wrought iron railed balcony extending the length of the row on the east and south side. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lighting was added to the building uh, through large skylights, which are still present in some of the buildings today. As the American Civil War kind of boiled over, both the Union and Confederate armies used the Henley Row building as bases when they were in the city of Galveston. Uh, During a three-month federal occupation of Galveston, which happened in 1862, Union troops actually used this roof building as their primary lookout spot. So it was a three-story building. It was right near the wharf, so you could see a lot of the coming and going in and around the city.
0: Okay, so yeah, probably good vantage point.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. During the Battle of Galveston on January 1st, 1863, which eventually ended with the Confederate forces retaking the city, a shell was fired from a nearby ship, and it actually hit the building and it shattered one of the granite capitals on the roof. Uh, you can actually still see the damage today. And likewise, once the Confederate forces took the city of Galveston, they also used the Henley Roof as a lookout spot for enemy troops and naval movements. After the Civil War, various government agencies and businesses occupied Henley Row, including the U.S. commander at Galveston, who managed the city during the Reconstruction period, the Army Corps of Engineers, and various lawyers and bankers who rose to prominence in Galveston's history. The next event in Headley Rose history started during the early morning hours of September 8th, 1900, when a Category 4 hurricane hit the city. This was pretty devastating for a couple of reasons. One of the main ones was that the highest point in the city of Galveston is only 8.7 feet above sea level. Okay, makes sense. Right. So now this hurricane comes in, you have these super high winds and rain pounding the city, which leads to a storm surge flooding it. Virtually no street, building, or neighborhood avoided storm damage. Actually, in my research, I found out that every single home in Galveston was damaged somehow.
0: Damn. Yep. Well, you've heard that that joke, right? What's the difference between a white trash? Uh, what's the similarity between a white trash divorce and a Texas tornado? What? Either way, someone's going to lose a trailer.
1: Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> this storm is so strong and violent. Like we're talking like winds of a hundred miles per hour and constant rainfall that people see not just like quote unquote trailers being whipped away, but like full buildings getting like swept off their foundations. Like it's nuts. Wow. Yeah. I found a statistic that was like over like 36,000 homes were completely destroyed. And about a Yeah. A quarter of the city's residents were left homeless after the hurricane. Uh, truly terrifying was the flooding, though. Like This is one of my like nightmare scenarios. So it pretty much rained from the early morning on. And then as the stor- storm surges continued, water kept rising. And from 3 p.m. until about 7.30 p.m., the water rose about four feet in just four seconds. So it just kept rising and rising and rising. Wow. Yeah. An additional five feet of water ended up flooding into certain parts of the city. So by 830 at night, you're talking like upwards of like 10 feet of water in the streets.
0: And see, this is why uh, as much as I would love to live like someplace a little more coastal because I like the beach and stuff like that. uh, I'm very happy that we live in the area that we do live in because we are in a valley. So therefore, you know, it blocks a lot of those wind related um, natural disasters that happen. And in areas that are a lot more flat, like Kansas and Texas and places like that, you have a ton of tornadoes that happen.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I already mentioned that really high winds at 100 miles an hour, a lot of homes and buildings were destroyed. So aside from all of the, the devastation and destruction for like structures, witnesses also report that They would just see things flying and becoming airborne um, while they were trying to, you know, find a safe place to hide from the storm. People reported seeing like brick from buildings, slate from roofs, timbers and other heavy objects like wagons being like just tossed through the air like they were nothing. Wow. Yeah. Uh, The storm wiped out all the bridges from Galveston and Pelican Islands to the mainland. And it downed all of the electrical phone and telegraph lines on the islands. That sucks. Yep. So aside from the quarter of the city's population that was homeless after the storm, an estimated 8,000 people or about 20% of the city's population lost their lives. Oh, my God. Yeah. The 1900 Galveston hurricane is the deadliest natural disaster in U.S. history. So, obviously, with that amount of devastation, you need some place to act as a temporary morgue. And f- fortunately, the Headley Row was left intact by the storm, relatively unscathed. And they used it as a temporary morgue. So, bodies were laying out across the floor of the building, and people from all over the island would come to Headley Row to search for loved ones who had been washed away and drowned.
0: This is a very depressing story you're telling me, Nicole.
1: <laughs> I know, I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> As the 20th century went on, it wasn't very kind to Headley Rowe, and by the 1960s, the owner- owners of the building decided that it was time to start demolishing it. They demolished the first part of one of the Western buildings, and local preservationists were horrified, so they stepped in with an offer to buy the building to prevent further damage. Eventually, they gifted it to the Galveston Historical Foundation, and the Historical Foundation spent several years restoring the building, and today several businesses are still housed in the building. Um, with such a long and dramatic history, it's no surprise that the Headley Row has accumulated a lot of supernatural phenomenon over the years. I wouldn't be surprised at how much death surrounded this place. Right, right. Um, so I do have a hot selection. This isn't all of the supernatural occurrences because, like any older building, we see a lot of the same kind of unexplained noises, those sort of things. But the Headley Row is very interesting because there are uh, at least five distinct entities that manifest there. That have been seen by multiple people over the years. Oh, do tell. So we'll start off with one of the obvious ones. Uh, There is a Confederate soldier that is often seen there. This makes sense. Uh, A lot of places that were bases for the Union and Confederate armies have sort of um, have been subject to paranormal activity after the war. It was a very traumatic time for the country. So it makes sense. Now, this Confederate soldier is seen in and around Henley Row, uh, always dressed in a gray uniform. Uh, people who work there have seen him running up and down the stairs of some of the buildings. An other business owner says that they would often hear footsteps walking back and forth across the ceiling of his of his shop, Ooh. which is weird because his are of his offices, which is weird because his offices were on the top floor, so the only thing up there was the roof. The roof, yeah. So it was kind of weird because he'd be in in his like office and he would hear this like almost like a loop of someone walking in a circle across the roof over him. So almost like the the soldier's still on patrol. Yeah. Other folks have said they've actually seen the soldier whenever they walk around a certain corner. He'll be standing right next to the doorway with a rifle in hand, almost like he's doing guard duty. Okay. He'll just appear and then he'll kind of blink out of existence.
0: I think that makes sense for the building, though
1: mm-hmm. it does. And then, of course, on the ground floor, you have the Headley market, and folks have reported seeing a shadow or a white mist um that will then solidify into this uh, Confederate soldier moving through the shop or sometimes on top of the roof or creeping along the alley or the creeping along the sides of the building. It's not really an alleyway. It's like the side streets of the building. So basically, like he's patrolling the building, okay. I didn't see any uh, reports of this ghost really interacting with anybody or trying to scare anybody or any really any kind of sentience. So it seems very much like it's a residual. uh, Yeah, a residual haunting. Uh, It could actually be the residual haunting of a couple different people. Like that's kind of the sense I got because he's always, it's always just described as a soldier in, in a gray uniform, nothing really distinct about the person. Now, the next ghost is definitely a distinct entity. Uh, she's known as the Lady in White.
0: Okay. So that's a common occurrence too. hmm
1: She has a particular area of Hadley Rose she likes to haunt, and that is the back side of the building. She's often seen going up and down the stairs, and people have actually seen her on the outside from the street. And in, when she does appear, it almost looks like she is crying and like frantically searching for something or someone. Huh she's always in a white dress or even a night dress that tends to be sort of Victorian style. And most commonly her presence is described as being one that is very sad and upset. Um, And when you do encounter her, uh, you could you will see her again, pacing and crying. So she's almost like a just replaying something over and over again again, sort of more residual haunting. Yeah, but of a specific area of the row.
0: And it makes complete sense again with the lady in white legends that we hear all the time because this is very similar.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, one of the most active residents, ghostly residents in the building, is the spirit known as the little boy. Uh-oh. Yep. Our favorites. Ghost kids. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Ghost kids. People have reported seeing him kind of running back and forth, but it's weird because he's often seen as like the static figure that's running back and forth from one end to the room to another. Okay. He is suspected of being a drowning victim of the 1900 Galveston hurricane because his apparition tends to be wet. Or looks, appears wet, and his clothing seems disheveled. He's wearing a most often reported wearing a gray winter suit with a hat and boots.
0: So, what you're saying is that we should grab a bucket and a mop for this wet ass ghosty?
1: <laughs> possibly, possibly. He seems a little bit more of a sentient spirit because he will play like other children's spirits do. Um, he'll run up and down stairs, Like I said, he'll run from room to room, almost like he's playing hide and seek. And sometimes he'll just appear sitting on the stairs, like, like he's waiting for someone. Okay. Um, a lot of times people who are in the building will think that he is a lost child. And when they go down to the first floor, which is where the retail shops are located, they will ask the the shop owners uh, about the little boy upstairs in the in the hallway and they'll basically be like no it's fine he's fine everything's fine <laughs>
0: <laughs> now is he also dressed in more Victorian clothing uh
1: it, it wasn't really clear it seemed like it was more um, like it was a winter suit almost like a like a like a dress suit type of thing so okay. um, I didn't really say one way or another I, I definitely picture something more turn of the century ish because that sounds right with a little boy with a hat on.
0: Because I'm wondering if that's the lady in white's child. Oh, that's a good boy.
1: It could be. Maybe that's why she's so upset. Exactly. So the little boy isn't the only ghost child at Headley Row, of course. Uh, There's also a spirit of a little girl who is often seen, but more often she's heard playing in the space that is now occupied by Headley Market.
0: Well, at least the ghost boy has someone to play with. I don't know.
1: I I guess. Uh, So she's described as being very young, um, four to five years of age, always wearing a dark dress. Again, some people have said that her hair appears wet, um, but her clothing is described as Victorian era. Uh, She's often heard and seen by other young children. A lot of times they describe her as being lost and looking for her mother. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so that this. could be maybe the lady in white.
0: Yeah, and you said that her hair is wet too.
1: Sometimes some people say her hair is wet, or it could just be she has darkish hair. Okay, she's more of the of the ghost who like uh, is heard. So like like she'll talk to children. Creepy. And she'll you'll hear like a little girl playing or like like calling for her mommy. Yeah. Um, sometimes she'll have like physical manifestations, and that's when people are like, oh, it's this like dark dress, darkish hair. Huh. There's a couple stories, again, of parents of children who go to the market, and they will come up to the register and say that they're looking for a little girl because their kids told them that there was a little girl who was lost in the store. Oh, no. But when the parent goes to find help and go back to where like their kids saw the little girl, there's no one there.
0: I would hate to work at the store.
1: Right, right.
0: Just constantly, excuse me, there's a little girl that's lost. <laughs> no, no, she's fine. She's dead.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> so uh, I mentioned before there's a lot of skylights in the building. Well, there's also, because uh, Headley Market's like kind of on the, it's at the center of the the ground floor and it has an atrium. Well, there's skylights uh, on the second floor that let light into it. It's really cool looking.
0: I do love skylights.
1: Yeah, they're really, really pretty and very, very um ambiance. The ambiance they have is lovely. Now, here's the interesting thing is a lot of people who've been in the Headley building have said they've seen this little girl spirit. Not in the shop, but on the second floor near the glass floor where the skylight is. Mm-hmm. And they report that even if they don't see the girl, they'll hear and see like footprints Oh, across the glass floor <laughs> when there's absolutely nobody there.
0: I don't know how I feel about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Most of the people who work at the Headley Market think that the little girl could be a victim as well of the 1900 Galveston hurricane. Um, Mostly, again, because she's heard a lot of times calling for her mother when people encounter her. It's quite possible. Uh, And then the last ghost I have is not quite a child, but not quite an adult either. It's a teenager. It's Britney Spears. (laughs) I'm not a girl, not yet a woman. (laughs) Well played, sir. Well played. (laughs) This is a super interesting ghost because this teenager, this guy, boy, appears, and he seems to be the ghost of an injured factory worker. Um, Now, his clothing seems to indicate that he is from the turn of the century. And that was a time when, you know, we didn't have the best labor laws. There weren't any kind of um, child labor laws until the late Late 19th century, turn of the century, really. Yeah. And, you know, you always, I feel like some of the first things you learn about the Industrial Revolution is how, like, they would employ kids in factories because they had little hands, like, I could slip into the machinery and, yeah, and um, horribly maimed children, all that good stuff.
0: Fun fact. Mm-hmm. So it was either my grandfather or my great grandfather on my mom's side dropped out of school in eighth grade so he could provide for the family and start working.
1: Wow.
0: Yeah. So yeah, child labor laws weren't really that much of a thing.
1: Yeah. No social safety net either. Right. Cause it's like, <laughs> well, this ghost uh, is a very young teenager. A lot of them say he looks closer to like 14 or 15 and he seems to be one of these children who was injured in a factory. They say this because he appears as a, a, a young, young teenager Covered in blood. He wears a white shirt. He is a missing arm. He's covered in lacerations and he kind of like stumbles when he appears.
0: Okay, that's a lot creepier than the ghost that I was imagining. Because before with your initial thing, I was definitely on a Britney kick because I thought it was a female <laughs> ghost. And I just imagine like this disembodied voice going, It's Britney, bitch.
1: That would be spooky, but also delightful. Oh, yes. <laughs> be like, don't pay any attention. It's just Britney. Uh, but this teenage boy ghost, it's interesting he appears at the Henley building because the Henleys were again cotton merchants. And at one point they did own a cotton manufacturing factory, like a factory that manufactured like cotton goods and textiles. Mm-hmm. He um also is a harbinger, which is I find extremely disturbing. Cause not only would it be like terrifying to see this like bloodied, one-armed ghost who's like stumbling all over the place, like crying oh, yeah. out for help, but he is a harbinger of peril so basically anytime someone has seen him at the henley building they say that something tragic will happen when they see this ghost um there are some stories of a a employee at one of the businesses in the henley building saw the ghost and then the next that same night his uh sister was killed in a terrible car accident so it seems to be again almost like a it, the black dog or a banshee type of oh, yeah. uh, harbinger spirit. So you're praying to God that you're not seeing this ghost. Yes. It's like, if you see the teenager mil- teenage factory worker in the Henley building, like yeah, be, be very, very careful. Call, call your wife, check your kids, make sure everybody's safe.
0: <laughs> hide your kids. Hide your wife.
1: Yes. Hide your kids. Hide your wife. Um, but yeah, so those are those are the main ghostly residents that have been reported throughout throughout the years um, at the Henley Building in Galveston. I thought it was really interesting because it was the first time we really encountered that harbinger type spirits, um, especially mixed in with a lot of the residual type ghosts that we see. Yeah. But yeah, thoughts, Eden. What do you think? Would you go to Galveston one and two? Would you go check out the Headley Row? Um, I
0: would. Um, I'm just. Praying to God that I do not see the ghost boy, because first of all, terrifying just imagery there. I don't want to see any torn-up kid with one arm. And then also everything that is implied when you see him is not the greatest. So I don't know. I would definitely check it out. Uh but I I would go in a group. I agree. You're like that. I'm not I'm not doing that shit alone.
1: You'd be like, he's here for you, not me.
0: (laughs) Exactly. I can blame it on someone else.
1: Exactly. So the sources for my story were TripAdvisor, Wikipedia, GalvestonTX.gov, discoverdalgalveston.com, GalvestonGhost.com, TexasHighways.com, TheClio.com, and BuzzFeed.
0: Thank you very much for your story, Nicole. It was very good. I liked it. And uh, I'm sufficiently creeped out.
1: Great, great. I have done my job then.
0: Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, I guess that's our show for this week. If you would like to get in contact with us, you can email us at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com.
1: If you would like to follow us on social media, I highly recommend it. We share fun facts that we encounter and delightful memes. You can always keep up on the latest updates with Roadside Horror Show by following us on Facebook and Instagram at Roadside Horror Show or on Twitter at Roadside Horror.
0: You can also go to our website, which is roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com.
1: As always, we'd like to thank E. Massey for our intro and outro music and Yox Rock's design for our logo.
0: Until next time, guys. Creep Creep on, on, creepin' on. on.